Hello and welcome to the Ultimate Football Network of Tabrice. And on the other line, I can I can easily say this is a living legend. Terry Burton, how are you doing, sir? Yeah, I'm okay. Uh, thanks for uh I think you've built me up a little bit too much here. Um, I'm, no, certainly, it, I'm certainly living, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, honestly, it's absolutely true, you know, absolutely true. So I'd say for the two people out there that don't know exactly your footballing journey, could you could you briefly talk about everything that you've done um, thus far? Yeah, okay. Well, um, yeah, you probably haven't got long enough. Um, <laughs> but, but, um, but, yeah, briefly... Um, my journey started at, at Arsenal um, as, I suppose, a 12-year-old, really. I was there. Um, I got invited into having played for my district. I got invited into the club by a manager that you probably won't remember, but he was a very famous footballer prior to being manager at Arsenal, was Billy Wright. Um, he, he he won. He had the most caps at that time for, for England. Um he invited me in, having seen me play for Islington, and that was as a 12-year-old. So I went there, came through, then came, went to the club as an apprentice in 1967. Um, had an apprenticeship there, uh, had a two years as a pro, uh, never made the first team. Um, but it was my club. I loved, loved the club. Um, I, I, Having left the club, uh, like a lot of young players probably even nowadays disappointed um that it hadn't happened at my you know club of which was the club i also supported as a kid so um i packed up for a while packed up for about six months didn't play at all um there wasn't quite the support at football clubs that there is nowadays um even though we probably think it could clubs could still do more to support the young players who who don't quite come through but I, um, I I was very lucky. I went on. I played non-league. Um, I was player coach at Ilford at 21, 22. I got invited back into Arsenal to um, work with the schoolboys in the evenings. From there, I progressed to being a youth team coach. Um, uh, from youth team coach at Arsenal, uh, went to work with the reserves and with Don Howe. Eventually, with Don Howe as his assistant when Don Howe was manager. Um, I had a couple of, you know, which are fantastic opportunity for me, obviously, with that background. Um, yeah, that took, took me through to, that was, I, I actually left the Arsenal in 1987. Um, and a year later, I, I, I joined Wimbledon. So maybe I'll take a breath there and you can ask me. <laughs> anything that you want to do. Wow. I mean, you know, I can, I can safely say that your kind of footballing journey is just a little bit better than mine. <laughs> well, yeah, I've, I've, you know, as I said, to this, I've been very fortunate um, that uh, you know there's been up, there's been downs, there's many, you know, quite a few downs, but but I, you know, in some way managed to rebound, and and it's it's easy to look back and go, oh yeah, well, you know, that was that was the way the journey took, but you know, it's like everybody in life when you have a when you you know, you hit a roadblock and something happens and you can't move forward, you know, you wonder how you're going to get around it. And, um, uh, you know, for periods, there was a year where I, I I worked in schools. I did soccer coaching in schools. I did soccer coaching in the evenings. I was, uh, you know, I, I was still a young man, but had a family. Um, 
and you have to support them in whatever way you can. Uh, oh. having, le- having left the Arsenal in 87, I was very fortunate. I'd Don Howard gone to Wimbledon with Bobby Gould and um, they invited me in and I joined Wimbledon in 88. Um, uh, was at the cup final and um, yeah, stayed there for 14 years after that, um, uh, which uh, was an experience that I would, you know, never have miss for the for the world because I left the marble halls of, of Highbury to the Porter Cabbings of Plough Lane. <laughs> and um yeah and it was so it very different experience but learnt so much um in my time at Wimbledon, particularly in those early days of people's players, characters and how important attitude and character was to performance of the team not just you know a technical and tactical ability but the fact that they there were characters there with a mindset that they um, have a you know winning mindset so that was uh, yeah a really good learning curve for me as well so 14 years doing various jobs at Wimbledon from again youth team coach reserve team coach assistant manager manager academy manager I think it was only um, the fact that they had Sid Neal at the time, who was a far better kit man than me, that stopped me being the kit man as well. Um, so, yeah, I did both jobs, yeah. Until 2002, um, when I was sacked, yeah. Okay, wow. Well, and uh, again, I, I can literally imagine that there's a lot of stories behind the scenes that, um, you know, uh, about, you know, Vinnie Jones and probably Dennis Wise and, and like, but antics, and again, you know, when I say antics, a lot of people just kind of see it as a kind of negative um, phrase. But I can literally imagine that there were, an, you know, there were antics there that literally probably galvanised um, the team and the squad. Yeah, yeah, that camaraderie. Um, I think in those eras of football, anyway, there were different, there were different um, ways of having camaraderie. Um, and, and Wimbledon just had this had several different ways, you know, from um, initiations of players coming in to, you know, mm-hmm. um, um, making them run around Richardson Evans and um, the common uh, without too 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 much to cover up their bodies, um, and you know, just different ways. But but the camaraderie was there, and it was an inbuilt camaraderie, and you know, over my fourteen years there, the, there were some very good players at the start. Um, some excellent, really top players who didn't get the probably recognition that they deserved. Um, you, you know, the Andy Thorns, if you like, of this world, mm. who, who's such a clever defender. Um, you know, Scott Fitzgerald, uh, Brian McAllister, these the young defenders who who who, who really had um, a great understanding of how to defend, and they used the qualities that they had. I mean, if you look at all of them. I could probably beat all three of them in a race probably now, but um, <laughs> but their brains were fantastic. They had mm. such an awareness of of danger and cleverness about them that, that so for me as a coach it, it it showed that there's more than one way to to actually um, win a game of football and there's more than one way to be a, a good footballer and that was one of the benefits I think of being at, at Wimbledon that you appreciated the different qualities that that players can have over the years and from yeah. Wimbledon I had a couple of years that um, I too probably I I like to probably I think you know my my um, most enjoyable years in many respects at Watford because um, I worked there as assistant to Ray Lewington 
assistant manager and they had such a great staff um that it was a joy to go into work every day and the training ground was my own uh, my old haunt, uh, hunting ground of, of arsenal um uh, so they used that training ground which arsenal had previously used at, at watford at that time and yes yeah, so i had two great years there before i went on to to cardiff for several years until leaving there in 2011 um so yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to get you up to date a little bit. There. I mean, it's honestly it's absolutely crazy. I mean, I've got just I've got so many kind of questions and and, and like so many things that I would that I would love to ask you. It's just it's so Sorry. difficult, even you know where to start. So um, it, so you uh, you could have mentioned a few of the players that were you know underrated. Um, yes. Who who like were the I'd say like the best players that you've kind of ever played with, coached. And managed. Um, I, I suppose as a, um, you know, most most of my career has, has been as a coach and a manager, mainly coaching. Um, and uh, yeah, I would I would probably there's different reasons for for players being the, you know the players they are. Um, and I, I think Tony Adams probably would come in the the category of being probably the best. I suppose it, when you consider, I I I worked started working with him when he was fourteen, so I saw his journey. I saw his journey from a fourteen year old to becoming the captain of England and you know a, becoming a recognised um, uh, top flight centre back. Uh, so I would think he he probably has, has been one of the most impressive players that I've seen. Um, just just for the fact that again he, he the strengths that he had. Um, were the were, were the qualities that he worked on every day, and he become, um, you know, a very good player at playing to his strengths, uh, a good defender. So he he had the this good physicality. Again, read the game well. Technically, was far better than anybody gave him credit for, um, and was a was a leader. So you know, different qualities. But but I think during my different times, Arsenal, it would be him. Uh, in that era at Wimbledon, I would say Robbie Earl. Um, and I say Robbie Earl because, uh, again, probably, uh, I don't think he went unnoticed, obviously, but but he, he probably, uh, he's, he, the qualities that he had, that box-to-box midfield player who could get forward, could score your goals, would defend his own box with as much vigour and enthusiasm as he did attacking the opposition's box. And he was like it week in, week out. And he was like it every training session. Um, and that's important. It's not just when, you know, the eyes of the TV cameras or the, or the supporters are on you. It's about what you do when there's nobody watching, which is the true character and quality of a player. Yeah. And so do, do, you, do you believe that um, from like elite players all the way to grassroots, uh, do you think you should train like you play or literally should you hold something back in training? Um, I, I think the only reason that you're holding back is is probably game management, and so uh, you know nowadays as well the, the the preparation going into games, leading into games, the intensity of training is is less. But I think as 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 you become more experienced, the players understand that, and why they, you couldn't say they hold back. The the you know the training probably is adapted to 
um, the match day. So if it's match day minus one or minus two, your intensity is not going to be as great as it would be match day minus three or minus four. So I think that is a, a, a natural thing. But I think in terms of your application should be the same. Yes, it should be the same as it would be in a match. The intensity might be lower because it has to be to, to enable you to play um, as many games as, as the top players play. But certainly your application, it, when you get to training, you know, you're there, you're prepared, you, you, you know, you're, you're, whatever you're doing, you're, 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 you're applying yourself to that. And certainly, you know, at grassroots, you know, or as a, uh, an emerging talent as young players coming through, you, you've not made it. You know, you've done nothing. You've got to show that you can make it. You've got to work hard every day in whatever you're doing to, to get to the top. It, it doesn't happen by accident. There's very few players that have, I've ever seen that have been able to get through. In fact, I haven't seen any that can get through on ability alone. It's impossible. You have to apply yourself to it. And you very very highly about your your kind of um, stint at Arsenal as, as a reserve team manager. And um, I think uh, a lot of people nowadays know in terms of the like percentages of of like people that want to turn pro is you know one or two to like percent. So when like you was you know uh, managing the reserves, did could you give us an approximate percentage of the players that you felt would actually still have a career in football in the you know uh, you know we you know I'd say in the in the next three four five years. Uh, uh, sorry, at what club were you? Were you, were you um, as at Arsenal. Yes, yes. While I was at Arsenal during that period, you know, I would expect by the time they got into Arsenal's uh, reserve team, as it was back then, you know, that that all of them would have a living, make a living out of the game at some level. Um, you know, there was still a reasonably low percentage. You know, people often talk of the Man United class of was it eighty one, eighty two, but Arsenal was it? I can't think what years it was. But Arsenal had a had a had a group of players previous to that who who were unbelievable. You know, so I've mentioned Tony Adams, but Martin Keown, Paul 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 Davis, you know, David Rowcastle, God bless him. Um, you know, Paul Merson. Um, they they came through, but there was other players who all played at top level like Raphael Meave and Martin Hayes and Colin Hill and Danny O'Shea and there was that these these players all had a living made a living in the game so more or less once they got through that initial um, scholarship age group from 16 to 18 and they progressed then into the reserve team virtually you know I would think 90% of them went on to have a have a career in the game at some level um, now that that changed because there's more players in it nowadays. I think if you if you said to me, what's your expectation? So I went back to Arsenal in twenty in twenty twelve. I went back as um the under twenty one manager as it was then and, and technical director for the youth. Um and expectations then were not as high. The percentage wasn't as high. But there was probably more players in the system. You know, back in the day when I was youth team coach we would maximum take eight eight apprentices every year eight scholars as it were as it is today um nowadays you know clubs are taking a lot more than that every, every year 
Miguel. It's um, so it's the numbers have got higher. So the percentage probably is is less. You know, part, partly through that, and partly through that the game now has opened up. The top end has opened up. Back when I'm talking about that Arsenal reserve team of the mid '80s, early early '80s to mid '80s, there 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 wasn't the uh, influx of foreign international and top quality players that there are today. So there were more opportunities. Um, go, go forward to 2012, 2014, when I was back at Arsenal working with the same group of young age group. Anyway, not the same group, but the same age group. That there was less opportunities because the level of players above them. Um, but even in that age group then, you know, there was still players who, who've gone on. You know, Serge Gnabry was in that youth team, uh, you know, in, in, in that period there, Hector Bellerin and Martinez. And, um, you know, there was players that had gone back to their own countries because there was a lot of, even at that age, a, f- a foreign influx of young players as well. Um, yeah. So, so the, Probably the the level at the top has become uh, it, it's been harder to to break through into first teams, um, and it's filtered down. So the percentage of expectations from that group of who will make it at Arsenal or maybe even make it um, into somebody else's first team was was less than it than it was twenty years previously. Okay, so. Would you advise? Actually, um, what what yeah, what would be your advice to to any parents that can have kids in that say uh, Cat One Academy, uh, and you know there's opportunities for them to probably go to a Cat Two to possibly you know get into a reserve or you know their pro- pro- professional side. What would literally be your advice to those parents? Yeah. I don't think there's one size fits all. You know, it can work both ways. It is about opportunity. It's always been about opportunity and um, you have to take many things into consideration. You know, I think you have to look at the club and you have to look at the the, the pathway. And it's quite easy, you know, to, not easy to do, but you can you can look at a predicted pathway at, at clubs now, you know, and go, am I going to get through to their first team? So let's take Man City, for instance. Um, Man City have many talented quality players in in probably all positions from the ages, you know, could be even younger, but 15 through to the going into their first team. So the breaking through it there into Man City's first team becomes very difficult. But the quality of work that goes on there, the quality of the club, the way that they care for players, etc., will enable those players, if they don't make it at Man City, to get a career elsewhere. Um, you know, because they'll, they'll have had good quality training, they'll have been looked after. Um, and I think that's important. You know, it, of course, the destination for all players should be the, the, the first team of whatever club they're at. That should be the destination. But it's not, it's not linear, is it? It's not a clear pathway mm. nowadays. You know, yeah. you've only... Um, um, uh, you've only got to look at the Chelsea model, you know, where yeah, yeah. young players now are looking at it and going, and they're very good players, you know, Liveramento, uh, fantastic youth player, um, Chelsea highly thought of, Chelsea loved him. But as a, as a you know, player with his parents and probably agent have looked at it and gone, do you know what, we might not <clears throat> make it here. Um, you know, what other opportunities are out there for us? And, and I think that will happen 
personally, I think that will happen more often now with those top clubs because the level of um, competition is so great that you, you, you know you won't make it in your your your, your um, home club first team. There's a good chance you won't make it there, but you, you can make it elsewhere. Yeah, and uh, t- talking about talent, uh, you know, um, you you literally brought through Aaron Ramsey, and uh, and again, you know, former you know, Arsenal player, and I believe he's played for you, you know, Juventus. Um, could, could you kind of talk about what you saw in him, and you know, and literally, what? Yeah, well, I, why, I, I, yeah. You know, listen, it's I, I, I was involved with Aaron. I can't claim to, that I, I bought him for. I mean, it was a lot of, you know, and that's the thing about. We, we, listen, I'm, I'm, I'll be the first to put, put my name to a good player, but <laughs> the, the, the realis, realism is that you know there's different levels, different layers of it. There's so many people involved in it. I mean, the scouts, which I have a great appreciation of now than probably I, I did, you know, five, ten years ago. But the, pre, the scout that brought Aaron Ramsey into the club, that saw that ability in him, that talent in him, um, you know, fantastic because they're the first look they see them they recommend them it's a lot easier once they get into a club and they're probably two or three years into the journey for coaches to go oh yeah he's a good player but those people that go out and spot them you know on a cold wet welsh morning when it's pouring with rain which you know it's it's a it's a great skill and um you know i've great admiration for those those people so they deserve all the credit. You know, they, he came into the club, the youth coaches that worked with him when he was probably, you know, 14, 15, great admiration. They deserve the credit. When he, when I first saw Aaron Ramsey, he was he just left school. He trained with the first team. I was first team assistant manager at Cardiff. And he came into the side. He came into the training every day. He didn't get into the side. And it was quite late getting in. It was just like two days after his 17th birthday, I think. But, um, but he was, so he was obviously a very good young player. But what the kid had, the abilities that he had, was a willingness to run, a willingness to make things happen. And I think it's, again, it's an underrated ability now. We look at technical players and we go, oh, he's a great passer, he's a great goal scorer. But, you know, there's a place in football teams for people that make things happen by the way that they work off the pit, not just run around like a you know, like a kid in the playground, but make things happen with their ability to run. And Aaron Ramsey did. He would run forward. And if he didn't quite happen for him, he would he would run back and get back in shape and, you know, do that side of it. And then there'd be an opportunity again. He might have a pass. He might have a... But he'd see an opportunity to run forward. He'd run forward. So it was that ability, that energy, that, that desire and willingness and intensity to make things happen, which which got him into Cardiff's first team at the age of 17. And he played in, the, I think it was against Chase Town in the FA Cup the year at Cardiff in, in 2007-8 season, 2008, because it was the third round. We got to the FA Cup final, we played Portsmouth. Um, and Aaron Ramsey played in that first game away at Chase Town. You know, so yeah. credit to Dave, Dave Jones, the manager, for picking him and putting him in. But he'd been in training with us for probably six months prior to that as a as a as a uh, as a scholar coming in and trained every day with the first team, and yeah. got on with it. You know, he he'd, he'd make mistakes, but he, he he wouldn't hide. He'd go and make the next run. He'd go and he'd go and make the next attempt at goal, next pass. 
and there was no he wouldn't hide away shy away from it i think again that character and attitude is something that and while he was at cardiff and doing all this my my contacts still at arsenal and i was you know onto them all the time look come and look at this kid he's unbelievable um which they eventually did yeah mm, amazing and he, he kind of reminds me of a of a young frank lampard because frank lampard used to do the same thing just literally make those those forward runs and and yes like you know frank wasn't ble blessed with blistering pace but no. you know exactly what you, you know what you said before you know it's the timing of the runs and and like the football purists you know can actually look at a play and go you know what this is um the like skill or the kind of clog that they literally bring into a team and um yeah uh, he's kind of very similar to like frank very 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 similar yeah yeah and and that's you know again that 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 ability to do that shouldn't be underestimated by players who in in the game today looking to maybe get into or break come into the game you know that ability to make things happen and to work and to make runs and to get back in and get your shape and there's there's a few players you know today that are still playing in the premier league that have those abilities to do that so um yeah it's it's a it's a part of the game and it it it's it, sh it should be valued as much as you know good goal scorers or, or you know good creators yeah uh, you you like spoke about your time at Watford um what's your um opinion about Watford's season at this present moment and what they're going through well they've just probably made the best decision they've made for many oh really oh. I'm getting I'm getting Roy Hodgson in yeah yeah. Oh, oh yeah okay so i think meant in terms of getting rid of uh ranieri i mean do, do you think no, that was I, a I, good, listen, it's, yeah, good decision it's, well it's yeah um he, he had a long-term contract didn't he he was he was there for about three months i think so that was long -term. <laughs> um, <laughs> with the present present you know the way that they've, they've they have changed managers i never like to see a manager get the sack but he didn't win enough football matches and that's the nature of the game. If you don't win enough football matches, one day you'll get the sack. Um, and sometimes you get it even when you do win enough football matches. But, it, yeah, it, it didn't surprise me. But what has happened there is that they've given themselves, you know, a great chance of survival by appointing Roy Hodgson and Ray Lewington. Um, there's probably no one better equipped you know, to turn a team around and make them better organised and more difficult to beat. And yes, you know, it's been in the paper as well. You know, you know, they probably won't see attractive football. The supporters, yeah, the supporters want their team to win. And and Roy and Ray will give them the best chance of doing that. So let's talk about, of course, uh, the crazy gun Wimbledon. Um, so in so during is it the '99 and the 2000 season? That's when Wimbledon got relegated. Uh, what was the dressing room like before the game, during, and after? Um, well, you've you know you've got to, you've got to put it into context, really. That that year, you know, that previous year had been probably an absolute nightmare. So you've You've had a change of ownership from Sam Man to the Norwegians. Um, there's been a change of, of hierarchy in terms of who's running the club. It, like so, 
there's a there's a Charles Coppel chairman in um and another guy whose number I can't remember but it was his sidekick. Um you've got a team prior to prior to getting relegated, you've got a team that have gone I don't know what it was, 10 games on the bounce without winning or losing. Um, and, you know, it was, it was, it was in freefall, really. Um, the club was in freefall. Um, so it was, it was, what was the atmosphere like? It, it, it was, it, it, it I'd, I'd gone in, I'd been doing, I was academy manager when I got asked to, to, to take over two games to go. Um, you can't imagine that ever happening today, two games to go. Um, so what do you do? You know, I, I knew that the team were in free fall. I knew that they, you know, that there'd been mm, probably no organisation as such. There was the mentality had, had gone. The camaraderie was probably there to a degree, but the, the, the you know, the, the how to win a football match is, was disappearing. Um um, but it, it was my club, you know. I I'd been there twelve years at that stage, and and saw it as as being, you know, part of of the fabric of that club. So um, while it was a difficult poison chalice in many respects, I I decided to take it. Um, so it was it was very uh, strange um, and surreal, probably time uh, that back end of that two years and. Um, yeah, it, it was. I remember going into the first press conference and, you know, it only if Kate Adie had been there, who was the war correspondent at the time, you'd think that somebody had started <laughs> the World War on, on Wimbledon Common because there was so many reporters and cameramen and different stuff. So, And it was a bit like that, you know, the, the, the two weeks. It was um, We had two games, obviously, um, Aston Villa um, at home, which we... Which we managed to get a point and come out of the uh, relegation spots on goal difference, I think it was. But then we had to match Bradford's um, performance last game of the season. We were away at Southampton, who unfortunately had just again appointed a new manager in Glenn Hoddle, so they had something to play for. And Bradford were at home to Liverpool, who I don't think did have too much to play for at the time. But um, so it was. Um, yeah, it, it 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 obviously you know history tells you that things didn't go quite uh, as we'd have hoped for, um, but it was it it was yeah it was it was I'll, I'll never again forget the experience and the emotions and everything you know I can I can still remember now that when we had learnt that we'd been relegated because Bradford had beaten Liverpool, we'd lost at Southampton, of it was at the old Dell and. Having to walk, literally, of going into the changing room, two minutes later, the BBC or whoever it was want to speak to you, and there's then um, a live interview with cameras, etc., that you've got to go and face. And, and you know, it's um, I don't think any uh, FA courses or anything really prepared, prepares you for that. You know, so it's um, those were quite emotional times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you was very um, strongly against the move to Milton Keynes. Uh, what what was the general feeling in the camp? And you know, um, and how did you know everything 
of leading like up to the move of, you know um affects you uh, you know you as a person and yeah and the kind of surrounding areas well i think you you know at that stage we so we got relegated we're in the championship we which doesn't seem a lot of money nowadays but i think we sold 25 million pounds worth of players um that that money came into the club there was not a lot of transfer budget there to buy new players but anyway so you're going into a new season. We're trying to adapt to a championship and change of probably of style. <clears throat> I think the, the the positives for me of those two years were that I gave twelve academy players their debuts because I knew them, which was a, a plus. Um, we finished eighth, I think it was in the first year, um, and going going into the second year, um, the club decided, in their wisdom, <clears throat> or the owners did, that to announce to the supporters that they were at the end of the season, they were going to move the club to Milton Keynes. Um, so you can, you can imagine, you know, it's like going home to your wife, isn't it? And say, oh, by the way, love them. I'm going to be leaving you next year. Um, you know, for this, this woman that lives around the corner. Um, but, you know, while I'm here, can you still, you know, look after me, do my, you know, make sure that I'm looked after and it's, it's, you know, it's just plain stupid, isn't it? You couldn't make yeah. it up. Um, so, you know, on during that second year, I, I remember even at pre, we had a pre-season friendly against Brentford, away at Brentford, and um, the supporters, as I'm walking along the touchline with um, Steve Coppel, who was manager at Brentford at the time, the supporters are chanting, we want Coppel out, we want Coppel out. And he's turned to me and said, that's a bit early for a supporters to be chanting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I said, I think you've got, it's okay, mate, you're safe. I said, I think it's someone else that they're, they're gunning for. And it was like that through the, through the season. You know, our home form was horrendous. Um, our away form was fantastic. You know, we beat Man City, I think it was 4-0 away that season. We beat them 3-0 at home as well. Um, but but away away from home, we, 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 we just, the supporters weren't at home. They were turning their backs, not on the, wow. not on the players, not on mm-hmm. the players, but on the, on the club, on the, on the ownership and going, look, we, and, and, and I understand, I understood it. You know, I thought they're making their feelings known. They've got to do it. I understood that. And, and um, it wasn't about the players and myself or whatever, but our home form was, was average. To say, if we'd have had a good away, as our, if our home form had been like our away form, we'd have we'd have probably got promoted automatically. Um, mm-hmm. But but it wasn't, um, and the supporters, as I say, were doing everything they could to let their feelings be known. And and I was having to sit in board meetings and listen to the, that they were going to. This is what they were going to do, and you know how great it was going to be. And and at this time, you know, I'm I'm between. The rock and a hard place. So, um, and as it got towards the end of the season, and it became, I always put my faith in the FA that the FA would turn it down, and they wouldn't allow it to happen. That was that was that was my thoughts. Um, you know, so I thought, well, let this will happen. They won't. They won't. They won't allow it to happen. But as it as it turned out, they got past that. They did. So I, I towards the end of that season, I had. Um, a burst appendix and I was in hospital. I had to go into hospital and have my appendix out, emergency operation. And while I was in the hospital for the week, 
I had conjured up a plan. I'm not sure if it was the drugs or not. <laughs> when I came out, I was going to go to the owners and saying, look, you know, the only way for survival is you've got to get with the supporters. You've got to get them on board. You've got to let them know that you, you're not going to make this happen. I said, otherwise you, the clubs, you know, will die. And um, anyway, I, I didn't really get the chance to get to the owners. You know, we, the situation got from, went from bad to worse. Um, they so there wasn't just the Milton Keynes thing for me, which was a major thing, but they also then tried to interfere in the team selection, um, where I was threatened that if I if I played a player who was who would have got to so many appearances uh, and would have had to have a contract renewal, that you know that they would they wouldn't look kindly on it. And I said, no, I'm playing that player who deserves this opportunity. Um, it, it, there's no way that you can stop me picking the team that I think is the best team to play, just from a financial point of view. Where, and it was a young player who wasn't getting paid a lot of money, but as part of his contract was that he got another hundred pound a week or whatever it was. You know, once he'd made so many appearances, and and if he played in the last two games, he would have made those appearances. And I refused. I said, no, I'm going to play him. I'm not going to pick the team because you're for this matter. I said, I will lose the dressing room. Everybody will know why it's why it's there. And I played the player and uh, I got sacked three days later. But um, at oh, the end no. of the season. Um, but I would have done it all again, really, because there was, you know, I still had a year left of my contract, um, which they eventually didn't pay um, because I had supported the creation of the new club. And I thought, look, you've made your decision. You're going to Milton Keynes. There's, and this was really early days of the formation when they were just having a kick around on Wimbledon Common to try and formulate a team. And both David mm. Barnard and myself went there for their first trials and we just to support them and go, look, well done. It's great that you're not going to let it die. You know, never imagined that they could get to where they are today. But, um, but you know, this is, this, this is good. Your supporters are going to say, look, we're not going to let the club or the name of the club die. Um, we've been through too many times together to let that happen. We're going to try and create a new club. And I supported that. Um, but they, they used that as an excuse not to pay me um, and uh, never got the money. And the club went into administration later that year. And um, yeah, um, so not only did they sack me, but they didn't pay me. And it, it, it was, um, you know, quite, Annoying when you consider that people like Egil Olsen, who had been there and done nothing and ruined the club, along with the owners and the chairman, actually probably went out of the club with more money than they came in with. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Do, do you think owners used football clubs as like toys now and, you know, and a kind of passion and a history of the game and, and like certain clubs are just lost because of the billions that are now at stake? Um, again, I think there's no one size. I think there's good and bad ownerships. Um, you know, I think it has changed now. People used to say, "Well, you, you know, you'll, you know, you'll never make a fortune out of being an owner of a football club." And many are right; they've lost money trying to support their football clubs. You know, um, because there's only there's only so many teams that can get promoted and win championships and get to that top flight, um, and the rest have really looked at it and gone that's where we want to be and they've thrown a lot of money at it so i think there's there's a, a lot of sympathy with own with some owners because 
you know, they have supported their club. They have backed it financially. And through, you know, through those reasons that football's not an easy game and it's difficult to win football matches, they haven't probably got the success that they'd have hoped for. So um, there'll be some ownerships that look at it and go, well, this is a vehicle for whatever reasons that they they want to, um, you know. I still think it's a, it's, a, it's a big gamble from anybody that buys a football club, you know, because it's uh, it's not easy. It's not easy. So um, difficult, difficult to say uh, really that, that, that you know why people why people take over clubs. You know, um, yeah. good. Yeah. There's good and bad. Yeah, I guess so. And uh, and you um, briefly spoke about the rise from Wimbledon Common now to to like now getting back to Plough Lane and uh, AFC Wimbledon. What's what are your hopes and dreams for for the club present? Um. Yeah, I, I I don't know. I guess I guess it's you know one one they've got to make sure this season that they get enough points to stay in the league again in in Div One. Uh, I think that's that's you know that's the most important thing. Um, it has become that if you look at those divisions, now, Division One is you know the teams in it that that have actually um, that have been in the top flight. It's, it's amazing, really, and such as is the you know, have what you call them big clubs if you if you like or one one time big club so the challenge is massive really um to get out of that division and at the end of it most clubs there'll be the exceptions of course but most clubs are the clubs that have got the biggest finance and Wimbledon haven't had that so I think you have to be realistic and say you know we'd like to stay in this league we'd like to produce some of our own players We'd like to get them in the first team. We'd like to, you know, make sure that our crowd appreciate the way that we play and what we're trying to do. And if along the way we can get more success, then great. Um, but it, it um, yeah, and there'll always be that ambition, won't there? Every club has got to have that ambition. Every club, every club has got to look and go, you know what, we could, we could get the playoffs and we could sneak up. We could get in the championship. But you know that it's a, a real tough, tough job. Yeah, oh, that's amazing. You know what, Terry? I just feel that we're just scratching the surface with your footballing journey and career. And literally, I could literally speak to you for another hour or so. But um, but yeah, I'm really, really conscious of you know um of the time. And uh, honestly, thank you, thank you so much for uh, coming like onto the like podcast. And actually, before we we let go, um, yeah. what would be um I'd say like the biggest bit of advice you can tell anyone that's looking to get into the game um, as a coach, manager or player? Um, different levels because, I mean, as a player, um, I think you've, you've, you've got to make sure that you love the game. Every, all of everybody that's in involved in the game have got to love the game. And you've, by that, I mean that you've got to you know, the bad times, you've got to work hard through the bad times. You know, you've got to enjoy going to training every day. Um, and because that's not every day is going to be sunshine. You know, there's going to be cloudy days and you've got to get through those days. And there's going to be times when you think, Christ, I'm this is never going to happen for me. But you've got to work as hard as you possibly can to get to a level that you possibly can. And a lot of along the way is luck. You know, I've been very lucky uh, to have to have had what's happened to me happen so and i appreciate that and i know that 
but along the way, I did work hard. Um, and I did, you know, if you're a young coach trying to get a foothold into it, you've got to go and do time on the, on the pitch. You've got to go and work with a group of players wherever you can go and work at, with a group of players. Because that's the only way. You can't you can't do it studying off of a off of a laptop. You can get some great um, advice nowadays and information off of laptops. But the way that you're going to improve yourself, either a player or a coach, is to get out on the grass and to work as hard as you possibly can. And then the next day, go back and do it all over again. Wow. For me, it's about hard work. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. Tell me honestly, thank you, thank you so much. And again, I just, you know, I just could feel oh, there's so much. Oh gosh, you know what? This is not going to be the last time that um that we'll be having a conversation. Mark my words. <laughs> I, I hope not. And it's, uh, thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you so much. And uh, to all of the listeners out there, please go and like and subscribe to the Ultimate Football Network podcasts. My name is Tabriz. I've been interviewing Terry Burton. Thank you so much. And we will see you guys on the next episode.